0: Well we're going to do some Bible readings first. Um, We've got two Bible readings. We've got Matthew 19, um, which in... uh, I've got this blue Bible, I don't know if that's the church Bible, but if you've got one of those, Matthew 19, and uh, you can find that reading from... um, verse 7. It's on page 986 in that blue Bible, if you've got one of those. Ah, uh, there it is. Um, yeah. Oh, it's verse, verse 10, sorry, from verse 10. The So it's Matthew 19 from verse 10. Jesus uh, has had this discussion about marriage and divorce and how uh, serious that is. And the disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And then Jesus replied, Well, not everyone can accept it, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So that's that one. That's an interesting word right away. What's all that about? We'll have a look. And then the second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 26. Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sin. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spur you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't. Those who mourn as if they didn't. Those who are happy as if they weren't. Those who buy something as if it weren't theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world uh, as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, or or should be, Uh, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm not saying this for, I I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Well, that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Well, this is a subject that's not very often covered anymore. Uh, it used to be one of the most popular or most common sermon series back in the ancient world and medieval world. This, and those readings, they feel, when you hear them, you're like, oh, I don't think I've heard that before, maybe. Or well, that sounds a bit a bit hard, or a bit much. Yeah, but that, that's it. That's, that's, that's the Bible. And is part of the deep pattern of understanding of what it means to be a human being. And this whole understanding of human identity and desire and purpose and relationships, it actually only makes sense when we've fallen in love with the Lord Jesus. If you haven't fallen in love with the Lord Jesus and you're not in love with God, it's, it's, it probably will, it is going to sound like that's a bit weird. What's that about? You can't live like that. No, I, I'm totally, I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, absolutely. If you're not in love with the living God, really all this Bible teaching on this subject is just weird. But once you are in love with the living God and you sort of, yeah, then it's a different sort of thing. You're like, oh, hang on, I think I do understand what that's about. So that's a warning up front. Now, to many people today, it can seem quite a culture shock to see how highly singleness has been regarded by Christ and his church down through the ages all over the world and how we've had so many less now. Now it's not so common, but all over the world down through history, we've just very, very common to have all sorts of communities of single men and women living together in different ways, supporting one another. You know, we might think of monasteries, nunneries, abbeys, religious communities, very, very common all over the world down through history for lots and lots of Christians to live as single people and help each other do that. Uh, most of our great saints, you know, every day is a saint's day of one kind or another. We don't, some of them we know better. Well, we've sent Valentine's, I mean, we all know that one. That's coming up, I think. Um, but we mostly, all those saints, and every day there's a bunch of them, if you want to look them up, they're nearly, they're overwhelmingly single people, celebrating single people from Christian history. And we are devoted to a celibate single man, Jesus of Nazareth. That's our central figure. We believe that the ultimate example of human flourishing that's ever been was this celibate single person who died quite young. And we're like, that's the ultimate human life. Think about that, what a culture clash to nearly all of the modern world. And yet that's right at the heart of who we are and how we think. Then the modern world, I guess, seems to want us all just to get into intimate relationships huge pressure and agenda in media and and, um, uh, films and novels and social media huge pressure but Christ and his church have held up a higher calling and say no there's something more than that of a single life where church is our main identity our main family where we have far more brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, than we could ever have through just biological families. Again, that's a, what a vision of church that is, where church is your main family, your main place of identity. In the ancient church, there were so many books and sermons praising the single life, and they, if you start reading the ancient church um, fathers and mothers you'll see they often write on the subject of something like virginity and at first if you're not used to it, you're like what the heck? what's this about why are they always writing about that well they're writing about singleness really when you read it you'll see it's about singleness and what, what the proper way to understand marriage and relationships and all sorts of things it was really common and so much so that there was um like in ancient and medieval times, if you were a family and you had your children, your great, de- your great desire, the thing that you would pray for is that at least one of your children would enter one of these celibate single communities and be a monk or a nun or something. Nowadays, it's like, I pray that they'll do tremendously well at university and earn a lot of money or something. Whereas back in the civilized ancient and medieval times, you'd be like, oh, the best thing, wouldn't it be, is if one of our children was utterly dedicated to Jesus so much so that they lived such a life. It's interesting, isn't it? Culturally, uh, and it may be. It may be that some aspects of modern uh, Christian um, culture maybe's lost something of that celebration of the single life, and maybe at times we've been impacted so much by the sort of pagan world's idolatry of sex and romance um, that that's that's had a bad impact. And I think so in the 20 minutes or 25 minutes, maybe that we've got together this morning, perhaps we can remind ourselves of how Jesus and the Bible take this radically different view of desire and marriage and singleness and relationships and purpose and flourishing and all of that. And of course, there's lots of aspects of all this that we won't be able to cover in that amount of time. You know, how are we to understand and manage all our desires in single life or how to live the kind of church life that Jesus has in mind where it is the center of all our identity and our primary, all that. There's loads of things like that we're not going to be able to get into in much depth. We've only got this little bit of time, but what we've got, we'll try and do our best. So here's an interesting thing. The majority of people in church in the UK today, are single people. Uh, Either never married, divorced, or widowed. That's the majority of Christians in church are single people. Since around 2007, single people outnumber married people in church, in UK church. So today it's about 56% of church people are single people, and only 44% are married people, and it looks as if the graph is going to keep going to ever more that way, and that is how it once was much more, particularly in the ancient times, like what we call the early church times. It was much more like that then, um, when so many of those who became Christians turned away from marriage. It's a common testimony when you read those ancient things that a person, and it, that's often caused great trouble because you'd sometimes have someone who was like a, a royalty person, and they were all teared up to be married off to some great effect, you know, alliance or something, and then they become a Christian, like, no, I'm not getting married now, and well, you, you can't do that, that's outrageous, but it was quite common if you read that, So it's quite common that people said, no, actually... I don't need to be married, um, I'm going I'm to be kind of devoted to Christ and church in this new way, and, and it was considered outrageous and scandalous in that ancient Greek and Roman worlds that so many Christians turned away from sex and marriage, and, and pagans wrote against it, they were you know, they was like, this is outrageous that you're living that way, they thought it was unnatural, even immoral, that Christians did that, immoral. And a waste of good, fertile, attractive people Uh, for church to be so full of celibate single people. Many of whom were lifelong virgins. And it was like, this is outrageous. What kind of an example is that for young people? That's what they used to say. Because if all the young people do that, that's the end of civilization. That was that kind of thing. So now, of course, we do honor Christian marriage. Of course we do. And Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding feast. But in the kingdom of God, this single life theme is a life of this like high devotion to Jesus and church. And we'll just listen again quickly to what the Apostle Paul teaches in that reading. 1 Corinthians 7, just from verse 32 to 35. Um, I'll read from the New Living Translation just to give it another angle. I want you, he says, to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. Well, certainly if he's a biblical husband, the Bible requires husbands and wives to care for one another and look after each other and the children and everything. They have to do that. They can't just say, oh, well, nah, no, stuff it, you know. Nah, no, they have to focus on the, the person they're married to. And Paul's saying, yeah, they've got to do that. So his interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who's no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities, how to please a husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. So he seems to be saying there, look, a single person can be completely devoted to the Lord and church life and mission and all of that in a way that a married person just can't really now, he, I, I threw in the words uh, when I was reading it. Uh, a single man can be, you know, what did he say? Um, An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. And I threw in just, you know, or should be. <laughs> or should be. Because, of course, um, just, you, uh, of course, many single Christian, m- many single Christian people They may use their freedom not so that they can be completely devoted to the Lord and church and service. They might just say, no, I like being single. It's, uh, I can do what I want. I can please myself. I can live completely selfishly. Yeah, I I, I guess that is an option, like, to live just a kind of pagan life. Yeah, sure. But for the person caught up in the life of God, the single celibate life offers a level of, uh, offers this possibility of this kind of single-minded devotion to the living God and church life and human, because that's what we were designed for, to live as church, to share life together so completely. Everything we have and are, we're not designed to live alone in that sense. We're designed to live together as church. So it's a possibility to live that way. And and, and, and Paul's just acknowledging, married person isn't going to be able to Gonna, never going to be able to attain that level of single-minded focus well that's what the bible teaches but paul's teaching there it's actually he's not just invented that or just come up with it out of nowhere it's actually you can once you think about it you think oh he's actually spelling out really what jesus was teaching in matthew 19 10 to 12 that all you know the funny reading about eunuch thing um that's really the heart of all this when Jesus teaches like that. Oh, and it's not just a New Testament thing either. There's plenty we could say about this from the Old Testament. For example, just two easy examples. In the Old Testament, Moses, and he's like the second biggest figure in the whole Bible. I'm a massive Moses fan. You know, he was in his 40 or 50s before he got married. Always, for all the time when he was a younger person, he didn't get married. He was a single person. And then he gets married only in his 40s or 50s. And then in the case of, say, the great prophet Jeremiah, the Lord just told him, you know, don't, you don't get married at all. or no, Don't have any children. You're you you, to be single. So it's an Old Testament thing too. It's not suddenly out of nowhere. And, and in Matthew 19 then, there's this discussion about marriage and divorce. As far as Jesus is concerned, getting married is a very serious choice. It's not something you should just drift into. So, oh, we may as well get married. No, 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 no. It's a serious choice to do that as far as Jesus is concerned. And it's a demanding choice to make. And you might remember some of the teaching in the Bible about Christian marriage where he can say, look, it's like Christ and the church and for a husband it's like you've got to be like ready to lay your down life down as if you're being crucified and all these sort of dynamics to Christian marriage so Jesus says listen this is serious and they may have thought at the time I don't know from the nature of if you follow that conversation in Matthew 19 it's as if they're saying well what what do you think Jesus how is it best to get out of a marriage if you're finding it difficult and Jesus is like well you can't get out that's not, you, marriage is not just something like, a, like a, a simple choice. If you're married to somebody, that's serious. You can't just walk away from that. That's what his answer is. It's like a commitment to death, to live in such service to one another that it's kind of like, yeah, to death. And um, so he's telling them in Matthew 19 that within church, marriage has a kind of once-for-life intensity to it. You know, this is it. Uh, and the reason there you can't, it, I mean, one person put it like this, as far as Jesus is going, there's no easy way out of it other than in a coffin. <laughs> um, when the disciples hear that, <laughs> did you hear what they said? They went, oh, it's probably best not to get married then, isn't it? <laughs> that was their response. Maybe we shouldn't even bother getting married. And then Jesus really is saying, yeah, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. If, it's that, if that's what it is. And, and then as Jesus explains that, I'll read it again from that bit. The disciples said to him, if that's the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not getting married at all. Jesus replies, well, not everyone can accept marriage. But those to whom it's been given... Four, so it's almost as if, like, not everyone can handle marriage. But if you can, okay. Okay. But not everyone can handle that, because it's serious. Four, there are eunuchs who were born that way. And there are eunuchs. You know what a eunuch is? It's a person who, in the ancient world, would be... What do they do to dogs? What's the name of that? Where well, you remove their capacity for... Anyway, it doesn't, I've probably said enough. You know what it means. That... Well, <laughs> so a eunuch then is basically the, the equipment has gone. <laughs> um, I don't know how to say it. Mike's like, don't say anything more. <laughs> um, right, that's what it is. So, but you think, Jesus is using a phrase like that? Why? Well, we'll come to that. Let me finish reading it. Just hang on. Right. So, there are eunuchs who are born that way. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live that way, like eunuchs, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So, let's think about that. First of all, he speaks about singleness in terms of being a eunuch, uh, someone who's cut off their sexual activity. Cut off the activity of that. And that is powerful and extreme language. There's no point in us pretending. That is very strikingly extreme language, isn't it? Uh, and, And that shows how serious singleness is taken by Jesus and church, why it's so extreme. Now, in the world around us, singleness mostly does not mean being a eunuch at all. It doesn't mean that, to be single for the world around us because it it, singleness really today just means that you 're staying away from long term relationships. It can involve all kinds of hookups ups and dating and all sorts of things like that it doesn't it doesn 't mean being a eunuch, but in jesus 's mind, no, this single thing that 's what it is it 's being a eunuch uh, it 's no possibility of sexual activity uh being a eunuch. So it's such a striking phrase, and we might You know, I don't think I'd have picked that word, but the big man did that. But how and why then? Because then it needs some explanation. So he gives three reasons why people in his kingdom, why that that is this case. Why are people like eunuchs for some or all of their life? Because we can think, well, Moses was kind of like that till he was in his 40s and 50s. Then he gets married to Zipporah. Um, the Ethiopian woman, and then they have children and so on. So here's Jesus' explanation. Let's hear him out on this, see what we make of Jesus' analysis. First, he says, they might be born that way. Well, that covers a huge range of reasons for being single in, in church, in Christian marriage sense. So it covers physical, biological reasons why marriage is unlikely to be an option. Just physical reasons that a person can be born with disability and all sorts of issues. Physically, that it's unlikely to be an option. So we can think of that. And then there are more uh, reasons that are born that way that are much more emotional and psychological and to do with desire. Of course, there are some of us who have either, uh, we might have very little sexual or romantic desire at all. We just, that's not something that we're interested in. There's there's quite a few, quite a lot of us and people in this room will feel, yeah, I've never really felt the desire for that. Uh, There's that. Or we are only or mostly attracted to people of the same sex so that Christian marriage has little appeal for us. It's not, on, it's not something, because Christian marriage is between a man and a woman as a testimony of Christ and the church. That's how it is in the Bible. And so we are saying, no, I, don't, I just don't desire that. Uh, uh, what the desires that we have might all kinds of different desires now the bible's not like shocked or horrified that we may not desire that or desire in a very different way the bible all the way through expects us is very like oh of course human beings have all kinds of desires and nobody in the bible gets condemned for the desires it's like of course you have loads of desires that are all over the place and different kinds of desires of course that's true but they're not necessarily going to lead to Christian marriage between a man and a woman. And so Jesus acknowledging that. Um, now, of course, um, that the, the way he understands marriage is, not, is, is, is quite different than maybe... And this has always been the case in the ancient world, the way marriage is done and handled. was very different than the way church did it, that, And it's always that way. We're always different to the surrounding world. Christian marriage through, throughout the Bible, as we've said, is a serious business, and even, even while we're thinking about desire, um, desire and the way we handle intimacy and things, even within a Christian marriage is not the way the world thinks of it. I mean, if we, just to pick a little example in the Bible, there are times when the Lord tells married people to, to be celibate for a while. Um, in, or, in order to draw near to him, as if to say, listen, stop, um, I want you to be celibate for a, a little while. It's in, exa- uh, there's lots of examples, but Exodus 19.15 is an interesting one. When they've you know, they've come out of Egypt, they come to this, and then he says, now, right, married people, don't have any intimate relations for a while because I want you to focus on the fact the Lord's going to meet you. So even then, you might say, well, what, but what business is it of... Well, I'm just, t- anyway, there's a whole other load of things to say about that. But the, even in, even within marriage, the Bible has things to say about the way we desire. So many of us may have all kinds of desires and yearnings or lack of them. And so, and, and Christian marriage is not some sort of cure-all solution for that. As Jesus acknowledged, he says, "Not people are born as they are born. And Christian marriage isn't like, it's neither a cure-all solution, nor is it even right or appropriate for so many. And just on this, the living God doesn't just take away or change our desires to fit with human expectations or ideals, where we might say, but Lord, I want to have this kind of desire. And he's like, look, you are what you are. You're born this way. And so that's an important thing to remember. Jesus didn't say anything about pray that you would cease to be this or anything like that. He's like, no, that's, that's how people are. So being born that way, it's a large and complex set of reasons why a person might be a eunuch in the kingdom of God um, to do with the way they're born, their internal nature or external makeup. Now, again, yeah, the world around us might see loads of other solutions to that. Um, other than being a single eunuch for the kingdom. But for Jesus and church, there is this radically different way of understanding human family and sexuality and desire. And that hopefully we'll see that more in the, as we go on. So the second reason that Jesus gives for being a eunuch, a celibate single person in church life, is he says there are eunuchs who've been made that way by others. This is also deep and complex, isn't it? Deep, complex. Obviously, there could be physical injuries done to a person, abuse, that renders a person quite literally a eunuch. I mean, that was a common way of dealing with people in the ancient world uh, for various reasons. So there is obviously that, or just physical injuries that could mean that they are physically unable to enter into Christian marriage. And yet, yet, there's a much greater number of people who have become unwilling or unsuitable for marriage because of what's been done to them. And some of us know that story well. The very deepest injuries that are done to us are not physical ones. The way we have developed relationships we've been in, crimes done to us, environments that have shaped us. In so many ways, the influences or actions of others might make us into celibate single people within God's kingdom. There's so much behind that phrase that Jesus speaks there, and yeah, like I say, many of us have stories that would fill that out. And for some, they may be driven into or happy with, comfortable with, whatever, a single life for a period of time because of what others have done. And may one day, they, and sometimes this happens, like they may one day then enter Christian marriage if that's what the choice is. But for many of us, this is our whole life that is that because of what others have done. But then he comes to this third category. There are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. The one who can accept this should accept it. So there are those who could get married and perhaps really want to get married. The desire is there for it. They could do. And yet they don't. They choose not to. They choose the freedom of church life. devotion to Jesus rather than the demands and limitations of a married life and that's a there's a lot in that category too and all the journey behind that and in fact Jesus says anyone who can make that choice should make that choice so within his kingdom within church many or so it could be the case that he's imagining there's always going to be loads and loads of celibate single people in church within his kingdom, and that is kind of how, as it has often been throughout Christian history, and we 're in such a time now where the majority of people in church are celibate single for all these sorts of reasons and, and it was interesting because I found tons and tons of quotations from church history about this, and I'll just give you a couple. There's Ignatius of antioch he 's from really like he said this in about one hundred a d so very early he just kind of repeats this. He says, if anyone can continue in this state of singleness to the honor of him who is Lord of the flesh, let him so remain. And then he adds, without boasting. (laughs) He says, you can't boast about it, but it's fine to be that way, and, and you should do if you can. There's another one from Justin Martyr, and he says, he's like 50 years later, about 150 AD. He says, many, both men and women, who've been Christ's disciples from childhood even, have preserved their singleness till the age of 60, 70 years, and I'm proud that I can produce many such from every kind of ancestry, men and women. Well, it's radical and disturbing teaching then, this teaching of Jesus and his apostles and church down through the ages, especially in an age where we are When marriage and romance and sexual activity is so idolized, so idolized, in much of the mainstream culture, there's a constant narrative that true human happiness can only really be found in romance and sexual intimacy. And if a person is denied that, prevented that, or limited in that way, they cannot flourish as a human being. That's a very, very common narrative. Those who don't have that kind of romance and intimacy are repressed or dysfunctional or missing out. Uh, So many films and novels uh, uh, give that impression. And finding that person, the one, is the happily ever after moment in so many films and narratives. The one, you've got to find the one. Even actually, even in sometimes in Christian circles in modern times, there's this I've heard this often said, God has the one for you. The Bible never says that, of course, but it's a commonly thing, things commonly said in modern Christian circles. Oh, God has the one for you, uh, for each and every person, and it's vital that we find the one. And then people, like, even if they're in in the process of getting married, they say, I don't know if it's the one. And I'm like, "What what on earth are you talking about? The one, where's that in the Bible? And then you turn this bit up in Matthew 19, and it's like, Jesus doesn't seem to be thinking that way at all. See, if we take Jesus seriously, he is not scheming to get us all married off. He's not doing that. And he's got a secret thing with the one on, and he's like, I wonder if they're gonna find the one. Of course, it's silly when we think about it, and if we listen to what he actually said. I'm not saying, of course, he takes an interest in all our affairs, and maybe he has, like, said, no, I want those two to get married, and it's all that sort of thing. And that's true. We, You know, he does that sort of thing. That's in the Bible, too, where he brings people together and does have them married, and it is in his purpose. But the notion that that is his purpose for everybody obviously isn't true. Um... So he actually seems to say, um, no, if you can handle this, if you're ready for this choice, choose to be single. We can easily imagine that we need to get married. We need to find the one. We need to have sexual activity. And, uh, you know, the rom-com genre, film genre, is a powerful delusion for both men and women feeding that myth that we need to get such a thing. The Bible warns us not to think like that. Don't watch that sort of film, really, the Bible would say. Don't be watching that sort of thing. Don't be, getting, don't be listening to the songs that feed that narrative. Don't do that. Because once we turn on the expectation of marriage and sexual activity. The Bible warns us about this repeatedly. Once we turn on that expectation of marriage and sexual activity, it's hard to stop ourselves burning for it. Once we're awakened to marriage and sex, it's hard to put it all back to sleep. That's in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9. It's in Song of Songs, verse t- chapter 2 verse 7, chapter 3 verse 5, chapter 8 verse 4. It's there in the Bible warning us just be careful once you set this, your mind and heart on such things. It's hard, to then, it's hard to keep it under control. Earlier generations of women, this is from the 1970s particularly, there was that phrase, I forget who said it, it's attributed to several feminist writers, but I quite like it in the relation to this. Because there was this whole idea that a woman doesn't need a man. Because there's that idea, oh well every woman needs a man. And they're like, no, a woman doesn't need a man. A woman needs a man like fish needs a bicycle. You heard that one. Like a woman needs a man, like a fish needs a bicycle. Like a woman doesn't need a man. That's from the 70s, I think. I forget who said it exactly. But that's actually, Jesus would go, yeah, that's right. A woman doesn't need a man. You don't need to get married. And then men maybe need to realize the same thing. Man needs a woman like a fish needs a bicycle, whatever. Um, We need to know that. We need to know that. That's true. Well, not necessarily the fish needs a bicycle bit, but we don't actually physically, we don't have to. It's not like, oh, my life's just empty because I haven't got a man or a woman yet. Uh, uh, There's um, a website, celibate.org, And there's a poll, it's got loads of resources, Bible stuff and everything, but it had a a, a poll that asked why celibacy and singleness are now so popular, particularly with younger people, much more so than previous generations recently. And the most common answer, 44% of those who answered why celibacy and singleness was so popular now. It's the realization that sex isn't the answer to life's problems and often creates more problems than it solves. I found that powerful because we, lots of us would go, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of true. It all depends, really, and this is now as we come towards the end. What are we truly in love with? What have we set our heart on? What do we really love? What does Jesus say? What does the Old Testament say? Love yourself? No. Love your spouse? Well, yeah, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, everything you've got. And then other loves in the right place but love the lord your god like that and that makes all the difference what do we live for what do we long for what do we yearn for and if we set our hearts on romance intimacy and we're yearning for that well that's going to control us that will be what we what we obsess about that's where our heart will go See, when the disciples heard Jesus teaching about marriage and divorce and they realized that maybe it's better not to get married in the kingdom of God, if you keep reading that chapter, um, he gives them a a revolutionary truth because they might be thinking, but if we don't get married, we're going to miss out on homes and children and all the extended family, we're going to miss out on all of that. And Jesus just heads that straight on. He says, listen, I'm telling you the truth. No one has given up home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or property or anything for me, for me and the gospel. And they will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, in this present age a hundred times as much, Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, property, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Well, what, you can see what he's saying. He's giving a vision of his kingdom, his church, of church life. Look, none of us have got a family this big. Look at this. What a mass. And as, as he as um, Mike said, like, when the kids went out, it's like half empty. No one's got that many kids. (laughs) No one's got that many. But we have, because we're part of this church family. We've got tons of kids. Tons of kids. And Jesus said, he can see it. He's like, can you see that vision? That you may give up things. You say, I'm giving up this. And he's like, yeah, but you're getting... You're getting so many more people, such a bigger family. Here, church families all around and all over the world, and some of us have the experience where you suddenly go to a church in some totally different part of the world, and you're immediately one with them, and you're suddenly at home, sharing their home that very day, and you've only met them an hour before, and you're in their home, you're eating with them, you're sharing with them, and then suddenly that family's your family. That's church, and Jesus gives that amazing vision of it There. All of us joined together, sharing life and possessions together, enjoying this depth and breadth of family life that is impossible otherwise. So church, our true central family, more than anything else. Then there's that lovely bit in Matthew 12, 46 to 50, when Jesus is there and then people come, because it is physical family his mom and Brothers are outside. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside, wanting to speak to him. And someone says, Hey, listen, your physical family's outside, your mum and your brothers. You need to get out there. They, They matter more than these people. What does Jesus say? Do you remember? He's like, Nah. Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Who's my family? Pointing to his followers around him, he said, Here's my family. He is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See that? Radical thing to do. He did a similar thing at the cross as well as he's dying. He could have said to his, about his mum. he could have said, oh, Jude or somebody, physical family, you look after her. No, no. He says to John, you look after my mum." In other words, he's saying my mum's best family is church. Can we see this vision then of human life? Can we see how the living God and church are much more than this world ever dreams? What we treasure, what we treasure and really love and believe in, that's how our heart, our passions, our desires will run. Our desires will burn us to the ground as single people and as married people actually if, we, if the treasure we long for and obsess about is marriage and physical intimacy. If that is our treasure, whether we're single or married, but if we're single people, if we long for that, our desires will burn us to the ground. But when we're caught up in other desires, other ways of fulfilling human life, tapping into the sort of life that we live forever and ever, then we can live with perspective and freedom. Jesus explains that, what we look at and how we look at one another, this is all in the Sermon on the Mount, radically shapes the way we desire. So I'm right at the end now, far from being then the answer to all our problems, getting married is serious and actually Paul says it's a bit of a burden, <laughs> well no he didn't say it like that but he's saying hey it's not, it's not the answer to all your problems. Christian marriage is a significant loss of freedom, single-mindedness and focus. It prevents us, he says, really enjoying the level of devotion to the Lord Jesus and church that a single person might be able to pursue. If If we do not need to have marriage or romance, if we've fallen in love with the living God and we're caught up in church life, we've all actually been designed for marriage. We have all been designed for marriage, that's true. And we're all being prepared for the greatest wedding that ever could be, but it's not primarily designed to just get married to one another, but to get married to this eternal Christ, the divine bridegroom. So all of us, we might say I want to get married at somewhere. Yes, you've been designed for the ultimate marriage, the greatest wedding that will ever be, and your whole life in a way is preparing for it. But it is that wedding that we are all being prepared for. Though Jesus was a single man. He spoke so often of that great wedding feast that's the goal of all history in the universe. The Bible begins with the story of Adam and Eve, and yet the Bible tells us that the story of Adam and Eve is not really about them. It's about Christ and church, and the whole Bible ends with the wedding feast of God when he's eternally joined to his people. Jesus said that in the new creation future, when we're all resurrected into that new kind of human physical existence, we won't marry or, get, or be given in marriage anymore. Marriage as we know it is just this time-limited little speck in this total existence that is ours forever and ever. Being single yet united together as church, that is the life that lasts forever that's the future, that's resurrection life. So we might find it hard to imagine, but church is the one way of living now that will go on forever, forever. This day, whether we're married or single, let's all see how the Lord Jesus Christ and his church's bride is more important and all the relations and the concerns of this passing age. Therefore, to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be ascribed all the praise, all the glory, all the wonder, all the majesty, now and forever. Amen.
1: Um, Just a few questions then, Paul. Um, Thank you so much, by the way, for taking us through those scriptures and helping us with that. And I'm sure, by the way, there's plenty of opportunity just to work through some of these things together over lunch, talk about it, share some of our own experience and some of our own insights on this as well. Um, Let me me ask you this one first of all. Um, Life with my partner doing not very much or the spontaneity of a walk, a chat, a game or just um, peeling veg brought much contentment. How can a singleton with limited family substitutes overcome that sense of loss?
0: Yeah, um, lit- church is, is Jesus's whole answer. So it's, it's difficult because sometimes here you've got an amazing church life going on, but for a lot of modern time, church was something which is really like let's meet, you know, get together in a, a room once a week for an hour run through something and then see you next week now jesus would be like well what was that that's not church church is church is how we live all day every day so in when you read the law the ancient law of moses and it's describing church it's got stuff about how you eat how you get dressed how you live with neighbors you know, every part of life—it's gosh, because that's it. That's what church is. It's all day, every day, sharing life. In Acts two and Acts four, when they are, you know, filled with the Spirit, heading out all over the world, what were they doing? They were. It says they just spent every day in each other's homes, eating together breaking bread, sharing everything. They said they got everything in common, all their possessions. And then if someone was in desperate need, someone might sell off some property, sell a car or something, or chariot, I suppose. Um, And then they just, because that's how they lived. Church was not like, oh, see you next week. It's like, see you in a couple of hours or something. And that any life, you just share life. You share life all the time. And so the notion that a person who is a Christian would s- just feel like, oh, I'm totally on my own, I have, no, I have no people, I have no life to share, and people aren't sharing with me. And I'm, that's, a, that's a dreadful, dreadful idea. We weren't designed to live that way. We were designed to live as church in the way Jesus describes church and thinks of church. Like in John 17, when he's praying for church, he says, may they be one, as the Father and the Son are one. We think, well, Father and the Son, that's like, you can't get any more than that. The one God who is three and absolutely bound up their lives together. He says, yeah, that's, that's, that's what church is supposed to be. So that is what church is supposed to be. And when it isn't that, it's, it's terrible. And single people can feel that very much. And But when you go back in church history before this relatively modern period, that's why like single people just living together as going to say, well, why don't we all live in the same building or share just life together? That was really common, not only in monasteries and nunneries, but just in more informal ways. Why well, don't you just live together and have a house uh, and, and things like that? So that really, the only solution is church. Now that then... Feeds, is a feedback then to say, well, is that the vision of church we're pursuing? Mm. Are we actually living that way so that every day we're in each other's homes and sharing food, breaking bread together? Because if one, in a way, lots of the pain about singleness and marriage and relationship, lots of that, even in Christian circles today, lots of that is created by this collapse of church compared to as it is in the bible and as it was historically where lots of people are effectively just having to live completely isolated lives it's like oh you can't get married because your desires aren't what you know you shouldn't there's only christian marriage and then that is how you can share life with somebody otherwise see you next week well that's ridiculous that's offensive What's that supposed to mean? You said because the, f- the first thing that was said about human beings, Adam, it's not good he's alone. Well, everything in the whole creation was wonderful, so very good. Oh, it's not good that there's one thing that isn't good, someone trying to live on their own. He says, no, no, can't have that. Well, that raises bigger issues, is not it? It's like the, the, you, can't li- you can't live like that. So yeah, okay. That's I mean I'm trying that's,
1: my best. No, no, it's brilliant. Can I just follow up that? So, um, Paul, you've planted several churches uh, yep. over the last couple of decades. Can you give us one of, just a sense some of the practical ways you've built this into church life in the 21st century.
0: Okay, let me first of all say I haven't achieved an Acts 2, Acts 4 level of total awesomeness <laughs> anywhere. But what we do have tried to do is um, just that sense of building a culture where you just Tell, talking to each other about problems and joys just let's share all the time every day whether I mean now you can I suppose things like whatsapp or things like that there's easy ways of doing it or just ringing each other but a culture where the first thing we think about when we're in trouble or if we're lonely or when we're in the middle of the night and we're scared first thing oh I'll get onto my church family Just as you would, you'd say, oh, like if you're a little kid, oh, dad, I'm all scared. And you go bust in on your mum and dad or something at 2 a.m. or whatever. It's the same thing. It's like, no, I'm scared. I'm having a panic attack. Church family. So we just want a culture where your first thing is, I'm sharing this problem with my church family. Or a joy. Oh, something brilliant's happened. I'll tell everybody. So we rejoiced together. There's that. And also a thing that we did, you may have this, but it's a thing that we did on Sundays and things where we'd have a spot called pray, Prayer, Share and Care. And we'd just be like saying, it was just a spot. I don't know how to make it function, because we were such a tiny group when we first started this. It's harder with this method. But it was just that thing that we wanted to be keeping it, oh, like, you know, oh, John's got to be in hospital this week. Can someone just make sure they get him there and be with him and wait with him, pick him up, make sure somebody's got something to eat. Oh, this family, um, he's lost his job or she's lost her job. Can we just make sure that there's a meal prepared for all the children? Can someone make sure they're picking them up? And it's just that way. You're just sharing life. Mm-hmm. Or this person, who's been to visit Betty this week? no one what's going on this is that should be a crisis moment why isn't someone visiting her every day or every other day and who's doing her shopping and it was just a way and then the other the, the sharing thing was the way that we would always be making each other aware about things we've got saying i've got a lawnmower. i've got this i've got that anyone who needs to use any of my stuff just come and get it and that's another way of building in the sense that anything we own it's not mine it's church family anyone can use it anyone can take that you know what i mean so there were just ways we found to try and build that in mm-hmm. to change the culture so that we're living not for ourselves we're living for each other mm-hmm. we're for each other and like, that's our first instinct mm-hmm. church family mm-hmm. help share care praying for one another visiting no one should and particularly those things with the loneliness and the panic and the sense of when you have a panic attack and you're all on your own—that's a dreadful thing. There should be no end of people we should be able to ring.
1: Let me thank you, Paul. Let me try this one. You? Um, in reality, church people are busy with their own families. How does being family to a single person work out yeah. practically, right. uh, given that something are import- uh, given that flesh? Oh, flesh family yeah. are important right. too.
0: Great point. That's Paul's point, really, isn't he? He's saying, listen, in church, don't depend on married people with kids. They're not going to be your best port of call in church. So That's what the Apostle Paul's saying, really. And that's why... You can't only have married people with kids running and organising church because they tend to think in terms of, oh, yeah, we can't do something then because that's when we pick up our kids or that's when school holidays are. It's like, yeah, that's your problem, Pam. <laughs> that's your life. The most people in church, that isn't their life. You can't organise church around kids' runs and schools and stuff. That's your part. That's you. For most people in church, as we statistically... They're not thinking about that. They're not thinking about that. So you've got to, or you can't, so Paul's like saying, yeah, no. Married people with kids, you cannot, depend. they cannot be your first port of call in church because they're not going to be reliable. They will say, oh no, I'm afraid I can't come. Kids got... You know he's been throwing up or something they've always got illnesses haven't they? and so mm-hmm. but, or whatever mm-hmm. whereas what you paul's saying look if church is going to flourish you the center the center part of life is going to be the single people they need to be almost in the driving seat really of church life so it's yeah exactly that point brilliantly put you yeah you can't have a church organized around married married people with kids because that is gonna definitely shut out single people and it will be a weird church. Mm. You need to almost flip that completely. Mm. And as that mean historically, I mean, maybe there were times where it was too flipped the other way historically and there wasn't mm. enough for, ma- mm. for m- families with children. But anyway, does that answer at all?
1: That's great. Let me do one more. Um, this is a good one as well. How do I know whether God wants me to stay single just for a season or 10? <laughs> or forever? How do I know? No, for sure. I, suppose, I suppose like a discernment thing, yeah. a discernment question.
0: It's a good I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because um, what I sometimes say to people is um, we've often practiced this sort of thing that will say, look, this is where you are right now in life. Say so you're a single person. There's no immediate sense in which you, you have to make such a decision. I'll sometimes think, it's why not make a wise decision and say, for the next year, I'm going to just be commit to be celibate single. And so that's it. It's, no, it's not even going to be on my agenda at all. I'm totally out of my head for a year, say. And what's good about that, and genuinely do that, genuinely, I'm not even thinking about it, it's, I'm going to actively shut out that for at least a year. What's good about that is it does then help you to really then know yourself much better, whether you really can hear that word from the Lord or whether he's saying to you, actually, I think, you know, you could get married or something. But I do think it's important not to live in a sort of limbo of all possibilities always. Shut that off for a period. So we've sometimes in our church plant situations offered, offered a vow You know, Christians from the past have often done vows of celibacy for different periods of time. So we just offer something where we'll just say, look, if you want to, have a year. And just make that commitment to the Lord and say, this year I'm going to live full full out as the celibate single lifestyle. And then at the end of that year, I'm going to review that. It's not I'm vowing for 10 years or 20 years. I'm just a one year. And I'll pursue that completely. Then when they come back round to that... Quite often, actually, they've said, well, I'd like to do another year, or can I do a three-year one or something? Or sometimes, they actually then think, no, I, 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 the Lord has given me the capacity to get married, Say, yeah. But I think that's a helpful thing to do, in that, just as a general advice, as a general advice, if you're in that situation, make a vow to just say I'm going to be celibate single for this amount of time like a, a, even if it was six months is it? but you absolutely pursue that celibate single life as Paul describes it Christ and church and service and things and it really then helps to just clear you your, because the turmoil's hard hmm. does that make sense?
1: Thank Paul, thank you so much. Thanks. That has been, a, there's a lot there for us to just chew on, think about, pray on. Let me just, um, I want to pray for Paul and I want to pray for his ministry and uh, maybe just gather up some of these thoughts in a prayer too as well. Let's just pray. Father, Ethan, hearing some of these things myself, uh, there's loads I just want to go away and process and think about. Ways I've handled things or done things. Lord, maybe we're having those same reactions ourselves. So, Father, we don't want to lose this moment, um, not individually or as a church. There's so much here for us to pursue. And, Father, I want to pray a particular blessing on Paul and the family. I want to pray for Paul's ministry. I thank you for a ministry spanning... Uh, many decades now, that has been so helpful, so encouraging, such a blessing to so many people. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to resource and equip and give Paul great energy for his current ministry work and writing and the ministry amongst the people at Leighton Stone. Lord God, be with him. Be with us all. Watch over us gather us into your loving arms may we know that uh, sense of deep call on our lives to love and trust and follow Jesus and to know him head and body head and body the church around us with Jesus as our head And we pray these things they would go in and they would go in deep we ask in Jesus name Amen.
0: Amen